Good morning, everyone. I'm reading the uh, script. I'm having the scripture reading this morning is taken from the uh, New International Version and uh, taken from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them the Son of Man but suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely concerns, human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along his, with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their lives will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Do you like surprises? Yeah, I'm not going to give you one right now. I just wanted to know whether you actually like surprises because, truthfully, not everybody likes surprises because not all surprises are what we would consider good surprises. Um, a doctor giving us bad news about our health. A mechanic telling you your car can't be fixed and you have to get a new one. Being let go from your job, uh, the one that you thought was secure. There are surprises we just don't want in life. But there are good ones, too, like getting a promotion or a raise. Or someone knocks on your door when you're not well and provides you with some food, a meal. Or running into old friends that you haven't seen in years. 
I remember a time when that happened to us when we were on the Sunshine Coast about 12 or 13 years ago in the church I was pastoring there. One Sunday morning, in walked some friends of ours from our time in Saskatchewan that we hadn't seen in about eight years. Two people I had the privilege of journeying with from officiating their marriage to baptism uh, to helping them overcome issues to dedicating their children. It was a we just are, are so enmeshed and entwined in our lives, and it was a, such a joyous surprise to see them that morning. We spent the day together um, after, the, after the worship service before he went back to visit his sister, who also happened to live in the area. In any case, as we sat on our deck with him watching, uh, you know, having lunch, he he kept staring at the trees. Remember, he's from Saskatchewan, so he's just looking at the the, the cedar trees in the backyard and just like, wow, I can't believe how big those trees are. But then he turned to me and he said, you know, I think they need to rename Vancouver. And I said, huh? (laughs) Well, it should be called 100 bucks. I said, why? He said, well, go to the aquarium, it's 100 bucks. Go for a nice meal, it's a hundred bucks. Want to go on the ferry? It's a hundred bucks. Everything was a hundred bucks. He said he, while he was enjoying visiting family and friends, he realized it was costly to do so. And as I said, I had the opportunity to walk with them on their journey of faith and, and, and celebrate with them some significant spiritual milestone moments. So I also know that they are people who understood the journey of that or the cost of that journey as well. You see, there's, there's journeys that we take in life that cost us money, okay? We, we get that. They, call, they drain our bank accounts. But then there's also those journeys that we experience in life that um, drain our emotional banks, sometimes even our spiritual well-being. We might not be prepared for either journey, with the cost often coming as a bit of a big surprise. But truthfully, the cost of following Jesus shouldn't surprise us, unless we have believed a lie along the way, um, such as, it shouldn't cost you much. It's easy to believe. You just have to... just raise your hand in a tent meeting and say you love Jesus and that's good enough and you can just go on with the rest of your life. It was a parody website, social media account that I follow that a couple years ago printed the headline, American Christian disappointed to find out that following Jesus might actually cost him something. You know it's bad when the Christian parody site makes fun of you and nails it. Could it be that we have missed the point of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Could it be that we really do think it should be easy and without much cost? Lent brings us stark reminders of the reality of life. Jesus' own journey was a very costly one. And the journey as disciples, as followers of Jesus, who seek to move from unbelief to belief in every facet of life, can also be costly. I wonder if we really understand this. Now, we have the benefit of looking back at a passage like Mark chapter 8, with the knowledge of how the story ends, of how Jesus 
conquered sin and death. It's easy for us to dismiss Peter's rebuke or criticize the disciples as they jostle for who's greatest in in the kingdom and those kinds of things. But what if we put ourselves in their sandals as as people who are hearing this first real time for the first time and are trying to process it? What if we put ourselves in their place, especially Peter, uh, but also the other disciples as well? Because I'm not sure we'd act much differently. Let's take a closer look. Now, our passage is a really important passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's like the the mountaintop. It's the peak. It's the crescendo moment. Because the first eight chapters of the 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark deal primarily with describing what took place in Jesus' Galilean ministry. And then we have this conversation, uh, verses 27 uh, to 30, uh, you know, where the, the, the great declaration, that's the crescendo moment, and then everything from there to the end of the, of the Gospel of Mark focuses on Jesus' journey to the cross and his resurrection. So this passage is an important passage. It's the transition from general ministry culminating in a conversation with a powerful declaration to very specifically focusing on the journey to the cross, dealing with also what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's an important passage in the season of Lent. Jesus and his disciples are um, walking in and around the village of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is an interesting place. It has this um, wonderful geography, which is with very rocky. I've shown this picture before when we looked at a a passage in, in Matthew that is the corresponding passage very rocky cliffs. It helps us understand why in Matthew the conversation's a little bit longer and there's this dialogue that says, on this rock I will build my church. We get that imagery that Jesus uses around him to teach very important lessons, referring to Peter's confession. But it's a, it's a place where there's a famous temple in that cave area uh, a temple to the, the, god, or the, the pagan god Pan. So there was worship of Baal. There was emperor worship and other cultic practices. In other words, Caesarea Philippi it was a capital city of, of a region that Philip was given to rule over. And, and it was a, a city that celebrated worldly power. Not unlike worldly cities in, this, in, in our day and age that celebrates worldly power. Uh, think of some place like New York, which has Wall Street, which has uh, the United Nations is there, uh, Broadway and Times Square. So you've got this worldly influence of money, of government, of, of the arts, of morality. Jesus speaking to Peter and in the Matthew passage saying the gates of hell will not prevail against this declaration. But there they are in this worldly city of Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Now if you or I asked that question, it might seem kind of needy. (laughs) Right? It's kind of like, 
like my worth, my value is based on what other people are going to think of me in the moment. Oh, who do people say that I am? Do they like me? Those kinds of things. But that's not the root of Jesus' question. He's not a human that needs approval of others. Remember, this is the conversation that now helps us turn the corner from his ministry around Galilee to the journey to the cross. There's a purpose to his question beyond what we might expect as human beings. Do his disciples really know? Do others really know who he is? Do his disciples know who he is? Do they know what he needs to do? Do they understand the cost of following him? They verbalize answers that you might even hear in today's day and age. Oh, some say you're a prophet, teacher. In their case, Elijah or John the Baptist, associating it with a Jewish tradition. But then Jesus makes it very personal. He says, but who do you say that I am? I imagine there was probably a bit of silence in that moment. We get, the again, the benefit of looking back. We just keep reading in the narrative. But I suspect there was a bit of silence. But then Peter, who's often known for speaking out a little more boldly than the rest, he, is, he verbalizes it. He says it. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. The one we've been waiting for the one that had been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years, has indeed arrived. And hope was at hand because the Messiah was at hand. They acknowledged who Jesus is. It's the pinnacle of that theological mountain of this this gospel of Mark. It's the crescendo. The one they had longed for to come and rescue them has indeed arrived. And you'd think, in a a moment like that, the declaration, the mountaintop kind of moment, experience that it would be, that it would become a precursor to empowered living for the rest of the gospel. But then our text comes along, and Jesus plainly states what that really means. Now, referring to the facts that is this conversation that he has takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi, those worldly powers and influence, the pagan temple, the emperor worship, the cultic practices. Uh, Leonard Vanderzee says, amidst the symbols of greatness, power, and domination, Jesus attaches the totally incongruous picture of rejection, suffering, and a cross. The world says, this place is power. And Jesus said, there's this picture I'm going to give you of suffering and a cross and death. He changes the landscape by asking the question, who do you say that I am? And then he plainly tells the disciples, now don't tell anyone. Now don't tell anyone. At one moment, it's the highest of highs, the declaration, you are the Messiah. Then he says, but don't tell anyone about it. And then he says, by the way, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders, killed, and rise again on the third day. So we have the benefit of looking back, but in that moment, is it really any wonder that Peter then privately takes Jesus aside 
because he does not like or agree with what he hears. He takes him aside privately, possibly because moments before, Jesus said, don't tell anyone. There's the, there's the disciples that are with him, but the crowd is also with them. And so maybe just, oh, let's, let's just come over here for a minute, Jesus. And then he kind of says, boy, that's a really dumb statement. <laughs> He doesn't say it that way, but I can imagine the conversation. He's rebuking him. So he's probably saying, that's that's just really dumb. I mean, you you know, you're the Messiah. Um, Messiahs don't die. Messiahs set up their kingdom. They reign. They rule. They, They, you know, not martyr. One minute he's the Messiah and says, don't tell anybody. And the next minute he says he's going to be a really uh, martyred, killed, the opposite of what the disciples and others would probably think a Messiah should be. It's crucial at this point to understand that what we have here is not just, and then Jesus says, what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. He's not just, it's not that Jesus is correcting some mistaken idea that the disciples have about messiahship. I don't even think he's making a theological point by saying, get behind me, Satan. In hearing Peter's rebuke, I believe he hears once more the voice of Satan, the one that taunted and haunted and tempted him in the wilderness to give it all up. See, because on the first Sunday in Lent, we encounter Jesus He's in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan to take the easy way out. And in the second Sunday of Lent, we're reminded that the tempter has not gone away quietly. Could it be that we have missed the point of what it means to be a disciple because the tempter still whispers in our ears today, to make us at times think that life should be easy and comfortable. To take the easy way. There should be little to no cost in following Jesus. Wouldn't that be a better way? That you get more than you give? I think sometimes that's how we approach faith. Jesus' indictment of Peter was, you do not have in mind the things of God or the concerns of God. You have in mind only human concerns. So when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, it's not that Peter somehow becomes Satan, but in rebuking Jesus, Peter now voiced the will of the enemy rather than having in mind the things or concerns of God. In Lent, we are confronted with the question, what do we have in mind as we live, love, serving him? Do we have our own concerns in mind? Or do we have the things of God in mind? As I've said before, I I think I worry that too many Christians are a lot more like Peter in this moment than we would be willing to admit. Ill-prepared, and yet you have an idea of how you think things should happen, and so we project that upon God. We even use the holy language of prayer in that sort of projection at times, thinking that somehow we can improve upon what God is doing or that we don't really need him to to bother him in the mundane day-to-day things of life. 
We think we know better or can do a better job planning life out than our Lord. Perhaps even in the Lenten journey, we think this way, where we project our will upon God, saying, this is how I'd like it to turn out, Lord. This is how I'd like my life to turn out, Lord. Rather than focusing on where he leads, even if it means traveling to difficult places, dangerous, costly circumstances. It's like we, we sometimes rebuke God when things don't turn out the way we hope in our own lives. Really, are we any different than Peter? I mean, here's what we need to do instead. It's advice that I've given before that you can read, and um, uh, many others have given it before as well. Is that simply we need to find out what it is that God desires. What is his will? What pleases the Lord? Rather than impose upon him what we think should happen in our circumstances. To me, that is a large part of the journey of Lent, and all of life for that matter. It's this rediscovery of what the Lord's will is, where he is at work, and joining him in that work. Having in mind the things or concerns of God. Now, Peter didn't have the benefit of the knowledge that we have, did he? The knowledge of hindsight. That the cost of Christ's journey would actually accomplish salvation and bring life. Think about it. His mission was to come and bring life. The cost of bringing us life eternal and life in him him would result in his suffering and death. But his mission was to bring us life. And Peter, in just saying, nah, you, you can't go there, is voicing the tempter's words in a way that says, I don't want you to accomplish the goal. Jesus faced down those temptations in the wilderness. Hearing Peter try and steer him away from that mission to bring life was like hearing those temptations all over again. And even though the crowd, even though he was just, notice what he did too. I didn't point this out. Peter took him aside privately, but Jesus looks at the disciples and says out loud, get behind me, Satan. So he makes it public suddenly. And not only does he make it public to the disciples, but the crowd, it says, was there. The crowd was not far away. They were never far away. So Jesus calls them all closer together, the crowd, the disciples, and kind of says basically, so, do you still want to follow? Because if you do, here's what it's going to cost you. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Those are scandalous words in Jesus' time. They're a scandal because he compares being a disciple with the horrific, scandalizing condemnation of a person on their way to sacrifice and death. Take up your cross. It's not a pretty picture. It's it's scandalous. Certainly, there's foreshadowing going on here. Jesus knows the kind of death that he was going to to suffer to bring us life. It would involve the humiliation 
that included physically carrying your own cross beam to the place where they would nail it to a tree. He knew that. But we need to understand what he means when he says, take up your cross. It, it, it doesn't mean for us physically piece, taking up a piece of, of wood and carrying it up a hill. It doesn't even mean endure the difficulties you have in life. You, the, 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 the typical difficulties. I mean, often, and in our culture, the phrase, the cross I must bear, is usually connected to simply uh, a prolonged period of difficulty that you're going through. Um, the potential for having difficult situations. But it has nothing to do with what we would just simply expect in life. Things like sickness, pain, grief, loss, those kinds of things. It doesn't have anything to do with that. What Jesus meant was that you need to get ready to pay a high price for following to be prepared for the potential for suffering and persecution that comes along with following Christ. Jesus came to set us free from the burden of sin, but we still live in a sin-plagued world where there is much suffering associated with being a Christian in a godless world. Be prepared for the suffering, for the persecution, for the rejection, even perhaps death. As Van Der Zee puts it, he says, following Jesus means self-denial, not self-fulfillment. It means self-sacrificing love, not self-actualizing power. It means giving up our lives in order to find our true self in the kingdom of God. If you've ever read Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, you may recall those words. Jesus bids us to come and die. I'm not going to gloss over or sugarcoat those words at all for you this morning. They are plain, they are powerful, and they are true. They may not be what you want to hear, but they are what we need to hear. That we need to be prepared for the potential for suffering and persecution, but to not let it sway us from following Jesus. Jesus goes on to say even more difficult words. I know I, I, you, I like to try and bring the, sort of the positive encouragement week after week, but we cannot avoid these words. And he summarized, if I were to summarize, it's like he's saying this, don't try to take matters into your own hands. I mean, if you want to gain the whole world, go ahead and gain the whole world, but it's going to mean forfeiting your soul. And if you're ashamed of me, why would you think that would be Okay. If you're ashamed of me, it'll be like I never knew you. These are hard words to accept, but hard words are what we sometimes need to hear, and we always actually need to hear, not sometimes, because they are truth. And if in Lent we really want Jesus, as we prayed a couple weeks ago, to clean out the cobwebs of our complacent lives, we need to hear this truth and be reminded of the cost of the journey. But amidst the warning stands this wonderful promise. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Ultimately, following Jesus is not a losing proposition. It's the key to eternal life. And it's a promise for here and now. It's not just something for the future. 
the joy of following Jesus on the path to, of the cross eclipses any joy that we can try and attain by worldly means. My friends, God loves you. Please hear that. You need to hear that as well because these words are also true. God loves you. And he showed it through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again, whose mission was to come and bring life, knowing that it would inevitably lead to his own death. Consider him, the scriptures say, who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because that's a way that leads to life. Don't be surprised by the cost of the journey. Don't believe the lies the tempter whispers even now in our ears. Believe Jesus with all your heart. That will not magically make all your problems go away, my friends. But when we draw close to him, acknowledging him in our hearts and having in mind the things of God, learning what it means to be a disciple, even denying self, taking up our cross to trust fully in him and not be ashamed, then I believe we will be able to overcome all of hope's great, greatest obstacles. We're on a journey. It won't always be easy, but it is a journey well worth being on because it leads to life, true life, eternal life in him. Let us pray. We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that at times, well, at times that we really would have the easy way out. We hear the whisper in our ear, the tempter saying, it should be easy. But we're reminded of the truth and that it isn't always easy. In fact, self-denial, self-sacrificing love, taking up our cross, being prepared for what may come, the suffering, the rejection, the persecution, we know brothers and sisters around this world face that in a harsh way today, even death, because of their faith. And so in this journey of Lent, a journey well worth being on, may we be vividly reminded not only of the cost of the journey, but that it leads to life, true life in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.